All right, if you've got a Bible, let's go ahead and open it up to the book of 1 Thessalonians. And while you're doing that, let's pray. God, we want to hear your word speak to our hearts. We want to be impacted by it and walk out of here changed. So we, we thank you that your word has that power to speak to us in, a, in an incredibly personal way. And we, uh, we're coming to it now uh, to give it honor and to, to glorify you in it, but also to, to, ask, to ask in boldness that, that you would change us through it. So please have your way in our hearts and our lives tonight. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So tonight we're going to go through the, the letters of First and Second Thessalonians. They're, they're both pretty short. They're honestly both pretty, uh, they're very similar. Paul was writing, uh, some people say he wrote them in the same year even, to basically, hey, here's letter number one. Followed up a few months later, hey, just want to elaborate a little bit, encourage you guys a little more. So, um, so it's probably, different people argue, and people smarter than me still come to disagreements, and so I have no idea for sure, but uh, these are probably some of the earliest letters that Paul wrote. Some people say Galatians might have been the first, but these are definitely in the running. So they're early on in Paul's ministry, um, but specifically as we're looking at the book of First and Second Thessalonians, it helps us a little bit just before we dive into it to remember how this church was started. And if you go back in, in the book of Acts, and you don't have to flip there, but um, in the book of Acts, in chapter 17, we get the story of the church at Thessalon- Thessalonica. And it says, when they had traveled through uh, Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. So the church... At Thessalonica, the Thessalonian church was started in a period of three weeks. Paul showed up, started teaching, and a church was born. And I think that's just encouraging to know that sometimes the work of God is a very slow process. Um, sometimes it's, it's incredibly slow. But sometimes the Lord wants to do something right now. And, and don't, we can get in the habit of, well, you know, God's never moved that fast before. And so why would I expect him to move that fast right now? But uh, never, never take God for granted. He's much, much too big. And so this church has started in three weeks. It started under a lot of opposition. The only reason Paul stayed three weeks is because if he had stayed four, he would have been dead. And there was, there was enough opposition that he had to leave. And so this wasn't that he wanted it to be, you know, the world record fastest church plant. It was just that I got I to gotta get out of here. Uh, for my safety and, and probably for the safety of people in the church too. So it's a church that was started very quickly and under a lot of opposition, a lot of persecution. And the people that drove Paul out are not making life easy for the people in the church still. But Paul writes this letter and it's just gonna be a letter of encouragement to him. Really both of these letters. He's, he's, you know, he's gonna address, hey, there's some things we need to be aware of, some things we need to watch out for. Don't go too far off the deep end here and here. But by and large, the goal of these letters is to encourage the church. And so if you're looking, sometimes it's nice to have like, you know, what's the summary statement? If you want a summary statement for First Thessalonians, it's this, excel still more. 
Paul's going to use that phrase twice in this book. He's going to say, just excel still more. You're doing great. Just keep going. And, and it's an encouraging reminder that sometimes that's the call of God for us, right? Sometimes it's, hey, you're walking in sin. You need to stop. Sometimes it's, hey, uh, you are going down the wrong path. You need to turn around. Sometimes, though, and sometimes, you know, if you're a, if you're a Christian and you're, and you're at a, a conference or an event or church or whatever and there's an altar call and it's time for anybody who wants to repent to come forward, you can sit there like digging deep like, I ought to have something, right? Like there's, boy, everybody's coming forward. Does that make me like, does not being a loser Christian make me a loser Christian? And you can have this sort of backwards thing in your head and Paul's just gonna say, hey, you know what, guys? You're doing good. Stay, stay strong, stay steady. And so that's really the, the encouragement and the message of this book. But we're gonna dive in, chapter one, verse one. It says, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And grace to you and peace. So the same blessing as all of his epistles. The grace of God is then followed by the peace of God. It's always in that order. Verse two, he says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. He says, every time we think about you, we're thankful for you. Because why? Because you have a work of faith and a labor of love and a steadfastness of hope. Remember, this is a church that did not get a lot of time for discipleship. It did not get a nice, easy, you know, let's ease you into the hardest stuff in Christianity. This church jumped in head first. And what's Paul telling him? He says, hey, you're steadfast in your hope in Christ. You're being faithful. You're being a church that's just, you know, you're working in faith, you're laboring in love, and you're being steadfast in the hope of the gospel. That's a great little summary statement for any individual in any, any church. Okay, that's what, that's what I would hope would be said of every single one of us. That's what I hope would be said of this church is, you know what, when I think of this church, I just give thanks to God because this is a church where people are working in faith and, you know, they're, they're believing in God and trying to do His work. They're laboring in love. They've got things to do and they're doing them graciously and they are just, they're steady. You know, our church is not, we're not exactly the most exciting church in town, right? Uh, we're, we're not our color scheme is a little bit muted. Uh, it's good stuff though, right? We're not, you know, when people talk about our church, they don't say, oh, the flashy one, right? It's, no, it, it's, oh, that one, right? But we're just, we're just kind of a steady church and that's a great thing. And he says in verse five, he says, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for our sake, you also, verse 6, became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So in verses 2 and 3, he talks about what he's thankful for. And in verses 5 and 6, he explains a little more backdrop. He says, I'm thankful that you have these things. And you have these things because the gospel did not come to you in word only. It was not just something you heard. It also came in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. He says, you guys have been transformed. And it's not because you heard a slick salesman give you this whole come to Jesus and whatever pitch. It's because the word of God came with power and it came with the spirit of God. And that birthed something in your hearts. And that's why I'm thankful. That's why God is doing something awesome. That's why I want to encourage you guys as this church. 
He says, you became imitators of us because you received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. This is a book, both these books, Paul's gonna talk quite a bit about tribulation and hard times, but he also keeps talking about joy. This church was born in hardship, okay? And, and you, you gotta understand that. This, this church is born in hardship and they are walking in joy. And Paul's writing to encourage them in that. And so, really, what we're going to do as we're going through tonight, these books, is just kind of look at that. Okay, what's the encouragement for a church that is, you know, that has individuals that go through real things that are hard, but also is just plugging away, trying to serve the Lord, obeying the Word of God by the Spirit of God. So, chapter 2, verse 1, he says, For you know, you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you in the gospel of God amidst much opposition. Now, if you remember two weeks, two weeks ago, we were in the book of Philippians, and we talked about how the church in Philippi was started. And it was started by Paul getting arrested with his friend and beaten and thrown into basically a septic tank chained into a septic tank. And that was, that was the origins of the church in Philippi because from there, God did a work. And Paul says, you know what? You guys know, after we'd been mistreated in Philippi, we had the boldness in God to speak the, to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. He says, honestly, after Philippi, we figured, hey, can't get much worse, so let's go for it. Where, what, I mean, what, what are you gonna, how are you gonna top that, right? Oh, you know, what'd you do? What, what Airbnb did you stay at in Philippi? Oh, it's a septic tank suites. Um, you know, it's like at that point, whatever. We're just gonna, we're gonna share the gospel. And so this church is born out of that, out of that sense of, you know what? I got nothing to lose. And we're gonna see oppression brings opportunities. Hardship brings this, it can, it can bring the sense of like, you know what? I don't know. God had better be in control because if he's not, then nothing else is gonna matter. And so, let's go for it. Let's see what God wants to do. Let's obey God, and, and as crazy as it might sound, and watch and just see what he does. I already, people already think I'm stupid. They already think I'm an idiot. They already hate my guts. What have I got to lose? And so, that's where he's going. Uh, chapter two, verse seven, he's gonna start talking, really, chapter two, he's gonna talk about his relationship to the church. And he's gonna mention specifically the ways in which he, he dealt with them. He says in verse seven, we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. And having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. In verse 11, he says, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is an awesome picture of how we interact with other people, how we interact with our church. Paul's saying, you know, we were there. We were like a mother and a father to you. We were like a mother. We were, we were, you know, gentle and tender and we had a fond affection and we were just pleased to impart to you the gospel of God. We were just so blessed to get to tell you about the fact that Jesus Christ came to save you from your sins. We also in verse 11, we're exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would, that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you in his own kingdom and glory. He goes, you know, we were like a mom. We were just like, man, God loves you. This is so, you know, I, I can't express, tell you how much God loves you. And we were also like a dad. Like, dude, 
shape up a little bit, right? Don't, you know, that's not how, you know, that's not how we do things here. And, and he's saying, we did both. And you can have this idea sometimes that, well, you know, you Christianity, you know, you're either all focused on the grace or all focused on the truth. Well, no, you should be equally proportioned in both. Gotta be the tenderness of God should go right alongside the justice and the truth and the absolutes and, and the hardcore lines of God. They're, they're supposed to go together like a healthy marriage. And if you subtract one from the other, you wind up either with uh, no conviction or no love, right? You either have nothing to stand on or you just have brute strength. And they're both, they're both awful if they're abused. They're meant to be understood together. And that's why, you know, as a church, we teach through the whole Bible. Because if you're not careful, you can just, well, let's, let's read the, you know, the parts of the Bible that are fun. Or let's read the parts of the Bible that are serious. And you can totally miss the heart of God. And Paul says, we were there for three weeks. For three weeks. And we, in three weeks, conveyed to you the heart of God in a balanced manner. We gave you the heart of God like a mother for her children and like a father for his children. We, we expressed it fully. And so the word is, it's gotta be delivered in both, in, in love and in truth. And he says, for this reason, we also constantly thank God, verse 13, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. He says, when you heard this, you heard the balance, you heard how we taught, and you accepted it as the word of God. You didn't say, oh, they're trying to toe a line or whatever. You said, no, that's truth. Because only Christianity can give you that much hard truth and that much love at the same time. Anything, no, there's really no other religion that can do that. Every, every other religion will swing that pendulum too far one way or the other. Oh, there's a God who's, who's you know, who's brutal and, and you may never know if you're gonna be in heaven or not. Or, oh, everything's fine and there is no such thing as truth and you just make up your own truth. Christianity is the only religion that can balance those two. And so Paul says, you guys understood that. You accepted it as the word of God. In chapter three, he basically is just gonna give a little bit of his own perspective and just how encouraged he is. Like, it was just so great to hear that you're doing well. And we were worried about you. We sent Timothy to come check on you. He came back and told us you guys are doing well and we're just super blessed by it. And then chapter four, he's gonna sort of, you know, he's past the halfway mark on his book, so he's gonna start wrapping it up. He says, finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. He says, okay, so last thing before we wrap up. We are going to request that, just like the things we've told you, that you're already doing, that you excel still more, okay? So he's not saying, hey, you all got to shape up. He's saying, hey, you know, you've received instructions from us as to how you have to walk. You are walking that way. Excel. Keep, just get better at it. Are you walking with the Lord? Get better at walking with the Lord. Are you learning what it means to obey the, the prompting of the Holy Spirit? Get better at it. You know, it, it's a wonderful, it, he's, he's, not, he's not bashing where they're at. He's just saying, that's great. And I just wanna encourage you guys, keep improving, keep growing, right? Keep growing. Don't get, don't get depressed by where you're not and don't get comfortable where you are. Keep growing. He says, verse three, 
Well, verse 2, for you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Verse 3, for this is the will of God. Now, sometimes we can say, man, I just wish I knew what the will of God is, right? Don't you want to know the will of God for your life? Like just, I want to know that I'm in the will of God. Paul's going to tell us two different spots in 1 Thessalonians, how you can know exactly what the will of God is. So there you go. You showed up tonight and you get to know the will of God. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That just means basically you're cleansing. God wants you to be cleansed. Because you've been saved, and we've said this, my gosh, you know, all year long. Because you've been saved, you should walk in holiness. You shouldn't walk in holiness to be saved, but because God has made you holy, he didn't save you so that you could be filthy in your sins. He saved you so you could be sanctified, so you could be clean. And so he's saying, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that each of you, verse four, know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Sorry, I skipped a chunk. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality and that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that, the, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So he says, what's the will of God? Don't commit sexual immorality and don't lie. It's pretty comprehensive. Now, what exactly do you mean by sexual immorality? How, you know, where would that fall in the 21st century? Well, here's how it works. You're either married or you're single. If you're married, you're in a exclusive relationship with that one person. If you're single, you're celibate. Anything else is sin in the eyes of God. It doesn't matter if you're talking about thoughts or images on a computer screen or another actual human being. It doesn't matter if you're talking about a person of an opposite gender or the same gender. It doesn't matter. Anything else outside of either faithfulness in a marriage or, or abstinence in singleness is sin. And, and he says it's because God hasn't called us for impurity. And he says he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but he's rejecting the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. There's a whole culture right now that's saying, no, that is not, that is not wrong. That is not sin. That is, that is you imposing your views on us. And the culture's not rejecting us when they say that. They're not rejecting man. They're rejecting who? The God who gives his Holy Spirit to us, right? And we said it earlier. You've got to deliver this in truth and in grace. So, I mean, I don't think there's probably a single adult in the room who could honestly say that they are you know, sexually pure. So it's not, a, it's not a point of judgment. It's just a point of honesty to say, here's what the Word of God says. Here's, here's, here's what God calls us to. And we are called to walk in that. And you know what? At different points in time, it's going to be a harder struggle for different ones of us. It'll be in different proportions, whatever else. But it doesn't change the Word of God. That means we need the word of God. We need the spirit of God and the power of God in greater proportions. And so, and I'm not saying this to be harsh. I'm also not saying this because I'm perfect, because I'm not. I'm saying this because it's the word of God. And our culture is screaming at us right now that we're hateful if we say this. And really what we're saying is, no, you got to understand the word of God is actually perfect. 
And God knows enough to know that if you step outside these lines that he has set, you're going to destroy yourself. You're going to destroy the lives of people around you. You're going to destroy all. You're going to destroy goodness. You're going to destroy your ability to understand real love. And so I'm not saying this to be harsh. I'm saying this because when we step outside these things, we diminish our ability to understand what God has done for us. And so he takes it seriously and takes integrity the same way. He says, and don't lie. Don't cheat your brother. Don't, don't you know, transgress because the Lord is the avenger. The Lord works everything out. And so, you know, lying to get the upper hand is, is, not, is not what you're called to. But in well, the end of verse 10 here, he's going to jump in just a little bit ahead. He says, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we have commanded you. So he's like, hey, you know what, guys? Work hard. Live humbly. Don't walk in sexual immorality. Walk in integrity. That's the will of God. Now that's, okay. You know, you want to know the will of God? That's, that's the will of God in terms of here's some things you should do and shouldn't do. But he's going to go on and he's going to shift gears here. And he's going to talk about, there was a, a teaching coming into the church at this point as they were, you know, when Jesus, when Jesus went back into heaven after the resurrection, he said, wait for me, because I'm coming again. And so they were waiting, and they weren't exactly sure, when is he coming? And so is that like next week or next month? And, and they didn't know. And so there was a teaching that started to go out that said, well, if you die before he comes back, you're not going to make it in. And so the church was a little worried, like, well, what about our friends who have died, but Jesus hasn't come back yet? What are we going to do about that? And so Paul's writing to address that. He says, verse 13, But we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as to the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say, verse 15, to you, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So he's saying, okay, people who have died, who've who believed in the Lord, they're with the Lord. Uh, it says in the scriptures, to be absent from the body is to be present with God. If you've believed in God and you've died, it's not like you missed out on getting to be with God. It's like now you're with God. You actually beat us all there. And, and now, unless you're worried about those of us who are still here, uh, in case you just kind of flipped your concern, he says, verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So he says, we're going to be, so he says, people who have, de- who have died knowing the Lord before the Lord comes back are with the Lord. The people who are alive on earth when the Lord comes back are going to be what? They're going to be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. This is what we call the rapture of the church, okay? And, and different people argue about uh, at what point in time is it going to happen. And some people say, you know, when we get to Revelation, we'll unpack a little more if we have time. Um, you know, there's going to be a great tribulation where the final judgment of God is poured out on earth. And some people say that the rapture happens before that. Some people say the rapture happens in the middle of that. And some people say the rapture happens at the end of that. And... Uh, We'll actually look at it in 2 Thessalonians because Paul addresses it a little more. But the word rapture here is a reference specifically to Jesus catching us up. And the word in Greek, it's the word harpazo. 
which is where we get our word harpoon. And the only reason you have a harpoon is so you can catch something and pull it back to you, right? A harpoon is a spear with a barb. So in essence, he's saying the Lord's going to harpoon us up. He's going to catch us and pull us up to him. Or in, in Latin, the word is rapturos, which is where we get the word rapture. Uh, in English, it's just translated caught up. But in Latin, it would basically be the word rapture. And it means like, you know, caught up, caught away. And basically, the Lord's just going to swing in, pull us all out, and, and deliver us from judgment. And so if, you're, if you've, I, say, I keep saying if you've, but I'm referencing dead people. If dead people have died knowing the Lord, because nobody here is dead, I hope. If dead people have died knowing the Lord before the Lord comes back, they're with God. And if you're alive on earth when the Lord comes back, guess what? You're going to be caught up. You're going to be harpooned away. So he's saying, hey, comfort one another. Nobody's, nobody gets left behind like, oh my gosh, you know, Jesus will not go back to heaven and say, we forgot. We forgot about Ted, right? That's not how it's going to work. We're all going to be caught up. So be comforted. And then in chapter five, as he's wrapping up this book, he's going to say, I'm trying to see how much we've got for time. He says, as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need that anything be written to you. So, you know, you, you write a statement like God's going to catch us all up. And then we say, well, when? He says, you don't need me to write to you. For you know, verse two, full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they're saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. So he's saying, okay, you want to know when it is? Well, here's when it is. I don't know. Paul says, we don't know. Jesus Christ in the gospel said, you don't know. But he says, it's going to be like labor pains. And so we cannot know the exact time, but anyone who's been in labor can tell you there's a period where it's like, you know, this baby isn't out yet, but we're definitely getting closer, right? We are getting closer and we're feeling it and, you know, and all that. And so he says, there's labor pains. Labor pains increase in frequency and intensity. So there are things we can watch for and say, you know, there's some of the things that God told us to look for and they, they're happening faster and faster and they're getting bigger and bigger. So maybe we're getting closer and closer. And he says, yeah, but... But here's the thing, you're all sons of the light and you're sons of day. You're walking in the light of God. You don't have to walk in fear of when does the end come. Because what does it mean when the end comes for us? It means we are with Jesus Christ. There is no fear in the end for us because we don't have an end. So as long as you know that Jesus Christ is your Savior, as long as you have a relationship with him, then the thought of end times is not oppressive, it's not scary it should drive us to responsibility to say, hey, I want to be a good example to those people around me who don't know the Lord yet, but it shouldn't cause us fear. And so he's saying, yeah, so what do we do? We don't know when it's going to be. So what do we do? We live like we're awake. And he's going to say, you know, nighttime is when people get drunk. We're called to live in, in a sober way. We're called to sort of know what's going on and be aware and also not be paranoid. So He's saying, God's going to come catch us up. When? We don't know exactly. We can watch and say, hey, you know, it might be getting closer. And in fact, mathematically, it is always getting closer. We are closer now 
than we were at the beginning of the teaching. But how much closer? Eh, we're not sure. Nobody's positive. Nobody even, doesn't matter how smart they are, doesn't matter how big of a following they have, nobody's positive. But he's saying, hey, comfort one another. Know that God is in control. He's going to catch you up and that you have the light of Christ so you can walk in the light. In verse, as he's wrapping up the book now, he's going to jump into, uh, we'll go verse 14 of chapter 5. He's going to say, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything of thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good, abstain from every form of evil. So you wanna know what the will of God is? Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. Some people have an idea that Christianity is all these complex rules. And Paul says, you want to know what the will of God is for your life? Rejoice. Pray. Give thanks. Be thankful for what God has done. And let that thankfulness turn into joy in your heart. And pray. And in prayer, even that, sometimes we can think like, oh my gosh, that sounds like a lot of work to pray without ceasing. And, and really, in, in context, it's more like just keep communicating. Right? Have you ever had somebody, you know, you ever been in love with somebody and you just couldn't stop texting them? Couldn't stop thinking about them? You know, you're sitting there I wonder if they're eating for lunch right now. I wonder if they're thinking about me. I wonder if they're wearing the bracelet I bought them. Whatever else, I don't know, whatever it is, right? You just, like, you just keep thinking about them. I think I'll text them just to say hi, right? I haven't texted them in 12 minutes. I think they might be lonely. And, and you can get in that, you can get in that, emo, in that mode emotionally, right? And, and that's really saying praying without ceasing is, hey, just be talking to God a lot, right? Just have a conversation that doesn't end. Sometimes we get our, you know, we're going to start our prayer, dear God, and we're going to end it in Jesus' name, amen. And anything that's not bracketed by that isn't actually prayer. And really what it should be is my life is a conversation with God, where I'm talking to God. And with that, there's a freedom and there's an honesty of, hey, I'm, you know, I'm trying to process this. I'm trying to sort through this. I'm trying to, I'm wrestling with this. I'm upset about this. I need some help with this. It's, it's a dialogue, okay? And then you do your part, and then what? Go to the Word. Go to the Holy Spirit. Say, would you answer me? And be ready for him to answer. He may not be what you want to hear, but he'll answer you, okay? So, so go to the Lord in a constant conversation. And then as you're doing it, give thanks. Think of things to be thankful for. Remind yourself of what God has done. And that's, that right there is the will of God. You can sum up God's will for your life in one sentence. And, and it's right here. It's 1 Thessalonians. Well, I take it back. Yeah, it's one sentence. It's three verses. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Okay. Because remember, Paul's not writing this hardcore corrective letter. He's saying, hey guys, I'm so thankful for your steadfastness. And I'm thankful that the word of God has impacted your lives with power. So keep growing. Keep growing. You know, he says, you know, you know what we wrote you. Just keep doing it. Keep walking. Keep growing. Excel even more. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks and everything.
That's the will of God. So that's the book, 1 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians is a pretty similar vibe. Um, he's going to address a little bit of just the persecution side. He's going to say we... He's going to say in chapter 1, verse 3, after he gives them, you know, greetings and grace and peace, he says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. We're thankful for you, and we just love telling people about how faithful you are in the midst of all your persecutions. And he says, this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. And so, put it in context, sometimes you can read that and feel like it's saying, if you're not suffering, then you're not going to make into the kingdom of God, and you can kind of read it funny. But really, what he's saying here is, we're super thankful for you guys, that you're faithful, you're plugging away, and your life is hard. And that is an indicator that God is is being righteous toward you, so you'll be considered worthy of the kingdom. When he says worthy of the kingdom of God, it doesn't mean like you're going to make it in because you suffered, but it's more a sense of like an athlete, an athlete being fit. When you suffer persecution and God allows hard things in your life, you get fit for the kingdom of God. You get fit by heaven standards. You know, you get fit by earthly standards. Usually it means your arms get bigger and your waist gets smaller. When you get fit by heaven standards, it means your focus shifts. You're, you're like, you know what? This world is not the greatest thing on earth. It's, it's beautiful. It's a gift of God, but it's not home. When, when you're made ready or worthy of the kingdom of God by persecution, it's God getting you fit. He's getting you in shape for heaven. He's saying, okay, the, you know, don't, don't lose focus. An athlete who wants, to, who wants to train and compete and win can't lose focus. You've got to stay focused on what am I eating? How much sleep am I getting? How much water am I drinking? How many hours a day am I training? God's saying, persecution, when God lets hardships into our life, that's a way of just kind of pulling focus and saying, you know what? Life is hard. I really don't need to be wasting my time on stupid things. I've got, a, I've got a finite amount of resources here. I better stay focused on the Lord. And so it's just a way that the Lord will sometimes and chip away at our flesh, chip away at the things in our life that just really don't need to be there. But as he's going on, um, he says in verse 11, to this end also we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the working of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, look, we're praying that God will use this, that his, he, so that his name will be glorified in you and that you'll be glorified in him. That's what persecution ought to do. Persecution, hard times, hard life, because life is hard. Hard life, uh, some people take it and say, wow, that just gives me justification to be bitter toward God. Paul say, no, what hard life ought to do is make you say, wow, I want to see God work in my life because I've got no other place to turn. I want to see God be my full strength because anything less than that is not going to get me through this. And along the way, that then glorifies us in the sense that it purifies us, right? It kind of, it burns away the bad stuff so that we are more pure, we're more ready for the kingdom of God. And so that's where he's going in chapter one. Chapter two, 
We're going to pause in two for, uh, well, for the next eight minutes anyways. Uh, he's going to say, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter from us, as if from us, to the fact that the day of the Lord has come. So, again, he's writing to kind of correct some things that were starting to get thrown around in the church. And some people were saying at the time, hey, you know, we've got these Roman Caesars. They're persecuting us. These guys are bad. This must be the tribulation. This, these guys are the Antichrist. And Paul's saying, in that case, it's like, oh my gosh, what do we, what do, we do now? And Paul says, hey, you know what? Summer down. Don't be quickly shaken or disturbed. He goes on, he says, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come, he's referencing the, the, you know, the great tribulation, the day of the Lord, it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes a seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. So he says, the final judgment of God will not come unless the, falling, the apostasy comes first. Some of your translations say the falling away. And again, we talked about, you know, like labor pains, there are signs, just like contractions. You know what? I think we're getting closer. And he says one of the signs that we're getting close to the judgment of God is a falling away will come. A falling away. People are just going to, you know what? We're not into this whole Christianity thing anymore. You know, I don't think... Uh, I don't think God is really super relevant. I'm religious. I, I, you know, I'm spiritual. I'm just not religious. I believe it's just kind of, but it's kind of personal. I, you know, whatever. And there's all these super hokey things that people throw out about how we're quote unquote Christians. And if you start unpacking it, it has absolutely nothing to do with Christianity. There's a falling away of people just, you know what? Yeah, I was, but, but now I'm not. Yeah, I used to be, but not so much. Yeah, no. Yeah, not quite. So he says, that's going to that's gonna come. There's going to be a falling away, and then the man of lawlessness will be revealed. This is known as, this guy's known as the Antichrist. In 1 John, he says, there's been a lot of Antichrists. There have been a lot of people who have been opposed to Jesus Christ. But there's going to be one specifically who's known as the Antichrist. There's going to be a man on earth at some point who's going to be possessed by Satan himself who's going to set himself against God. And that man's going to be revealed before the, the final judgment of God. And he's going to exalt himself above every so-called God or object of worship. He's going to take his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Verse 5, Paul says, do you not remember that I, while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? So Paul says, okay, remember this? There's going to be a great tribulation where there's going to be the Antichrist. He's going to rise to power. He's going to take over the world. And he's going to set himself up as God. He's going to be possessed by Satan himself and he's going to declare himself God of the universe. And he said, I told you things. And verse 6, and you know what restrains him now so that in his time he will be revealed. And you guys know. And sometimes you read, sometimes Paul says like, this is obvious. And you're like, ah, Really? Uh, he says, you know what restrains him. Do you realize the, the, the Antichrist cannot rise to power fully right now because Satan does not have full access to this earth. He, he has, he's got a lot of access. 
He's got a whole lot of access. But there's something getting in the way. There's a wrench in all of his plans. What is it? Well, verse 7, Paul says, The mystery of lawlessness is not at work. Only he who restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. So the mystery, the plan is all there. And has been for, two, for thousands of years. Right? The plan of Satan setting himself up against God is already in place. He, probably, you know, he shifts his scheme a little bit depending on the technology of the century or whatever. But the plan's in place. And it's going to be there, but it won't be revealed until he who restrains is taken out of the way. Now, who's restraining the work of the devil? The Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is holding back the, pow- the power of the devil on this earth. Right? There's, there's setting a boundary of you can have this much, but no more. And, and so he says the Spirit is going to be taken away, and then the man of lawlessness is going to be revealed. Verse 8, he says, Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming, that is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with, with all powers and signs and false wonders, and with all the deceptions of wickedness for those who perish, because they didn't believe, didn't receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. He says, okay. There's, the Holy Spirit is restraining the Antichrist from rising. The Holy Spirit's going to be taken out of the way. And then the Antichrist will rise. So understand, how does this fit in with Scripture? So we got we to put everything in context, okay? We were just told that before the judgment of God, we'll be caught up in 1 Thessalonians. We're told now before the final judgment of God, the Holy Spirit's going to be removed. And there are teachings that say, you know, we're going we're gonna to go through the first half of the tribulation and then we'll get raptured. Or we're going to go through the whole tribulation and then we'll get raptured. But here's the thing. In order for the Antichrist to, to come forth, to come to power, the Holy Spirit's going to be taken away. Flip over to, now nah, you don't have to flip if you don't want to, but flip over to the Gospel of John. I just want to read a couple verses from the book of John. We're going to be starting in chapter 14. Chapter 14, verse 17, verse 16. I will ask the Father, this is Jesus speaking, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it doesn't see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Holy Spirit's going to be in us forever. John 14, 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. John 16, verse 7. I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away, for if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. 6.13, but when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth, For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. We've got a promise from God about the Holy Spirit's role in our life. And he says, the Holy Spirit's going to be taken away. Now, there are people who want to say that we go through the whole tribulation 
And, and they're, they're wonderful people. They love the Lord. They're absolutely going to heaven. But there's an idea that, well, you know, Christians have to go through the whole tribulation. Well, here's the deal. If the Holy Spirit's taken out of the way in order for the Antichrist to come to power, then if we have to go through the whole tribulation, that means the Holy Spirit's going to be taken away from us. But Jesus said the Holy Spirit would be with us forever. So this is why I believe, there's actually a lot of reasons, but this is one of the main reasons why I believe that in the, what's called a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. I believe that before the great tribulation, every Christian on earth is going to be taken straight to heaven. Just like God did with Elijah and Enoch in the Old Testament, just like Jesus ascended into heaven, I believe that we're all going to be raptured. We're going to be caught up out of here. And I believe that that's how the Holy Spirit's going to be the Holy Spirit's going to be taken away at that point. And, and just logistically even, think about it for a second. If every Christian in government and law enforcement and medicine and, and public safety and you know, civil service is all of a sudden gone, just vanished from the face of the earth, there's a lot of bad plans in the works right now that are frankly constantly irritated by Christians. And if every Christian is gone, then all of a sudden what can we do? We can just speed up the process. We can just accelerate a one world government. We can, we can get all these things to come to pass so much faster because we'll be out of the way. And, and what, you know, the world will think, oh, the Christians are out of the way, but really what it'll be is Holy Spirit has stepped out of the way and said, okay, here's, here's, here, here you go. And so Paul's talking here about the, the rapture of the church and then the great tribulation. And he's saying, hey, be comforted in this. You're going through persecutions you're not, you're go- and tribulation. You're not going through the tribulation. There's a difference between tribulations, which is when hard things happen to us that God allows in order to purify us, and the great tribulation, when God pours out his wrath on the world for all of its sins. Those are not the same thing. God can discipline us and still be a loving God. If God starts pouring out his wrath on us as people have been saved and, and believed in him, that makes it really hard to sort out the character of God, right? Whenever we see in the, in the scriptures a time of when God judges a place, whether it was you know, at the time of the flood or Sodom and Gomorrah, he always pulls out the people who trust him. He pulled out Abraham and his family, he pulled out Lot and the members of his family who would go, and then he brought judgment. And so I believe sincerely that we are all going to be pulled out. We're just going to vanish from this earth, and then the Holy Spirit's going to come. And what's he say? He says, comfort one another. The idea that we are going to be raptured is a huge comfort. And some people say it's escapist, and that's really, I think, kind of funny because all of Christianity is a little bit escapist if you think about it. The whole point of Christianity is, I can't fix this problem myself. I'm going to trust in a God who can. And so to believe in a pre-tribulation rapture is to say, I don't think I can handle the great tribulation on my own. I'm going to trust in a God who's got a plan for me. And he says, comfort one another. This ought to comfort us. We do not have to experience the wrath of God. Some people say, well, if you believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, then it's going to make you sloppy and lazy. And really, you shouldn't. You should, you should believe in a, in a rapture at the end of the tribulation just to be on the safe side. So that you'll be, you know, 
you'll be stoked if you're wrong and you won't be too bummed if you're right. And I'm like, that's stupid. Um, no, I don't want to do that because, because believing in a pre-tribulation rapture does not make us sloppy. It is not, there is not an excuse for slob Christianity. It's, I am super comforted that I do not have experienced the wrath of God. I'm also super burdened for anybody I know who does not yet have a relationship with the Lord because I don't want them to have to experience the wrath of God. It's not an excuse for apathy. It's a call to action. And so he says, comfort one another and, and take heart. And yes, you're going through hard things, but understand this is not as hard as it will get for the world. And so be encouraged. And then as he's kind of just wrapping up the book, he says, finally, brethren, pray for us. That the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you. And that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. That's like a, that's just a phenomenal benediction. Pray that the word of God will spread rapidly. We know, we know prophetically right here that there's going to be a falling away. People are going to, one of the signs that the judgment of God is coming is that people will fall away from the faith. That doesn't mean that the word of God will not spread, right? Our, our planet's going to hit 8 billion people here in the next couple months. A lot of people can fall away and a lot of people can still get saved at the same time. So pray that the word of God will spread rapidly and be glorified. And he says, you know, there's a lot of bad guys out there, but hey, the Lord is faithful, right? It's a rough and tumble world out there, but guess what? The Lord is faithful. And he says, may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. And he goes on in verse six. He said, now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. He's saying, hey, remember the fact that Jesus Christ is coming, the fact that he's coming soon, the fact that you're going to be raptured out of here before the tribulation, that is not an excuse for you to quit your job and say, well, I'm just going to wait for Jesus. He says, no, no, no. You saw how we acted. Paul's like, I think he's coming soon too, but you know what I'm doing? I'm working hard. Because I do not know exactly when he's going to come. So I'm living life here. I want to live well and work hard. Verse 10, he says, Even when we were with you, we used to give this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now, such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. He says, you know what? If you're not going to work, you don't need to eat. He doesn't now, you know, he doesn't say if you can't work. He's talking about willing. If you're able to work and you're not working just because you're lazy, then you know what? Frankly, you in no way deserve a handout from a church or a government or a relative. If you're a bum, you're a bum. If you're lazy, you're lazy. 
And he says, that is an awful way to live a Christian life. He says, work hard. Don't, don't waste your life and, and pass it off as, well, I'm just waiting for Jesus to come back. He says, no, no, no. Jesus is coming back soon. I think Jesus is coming back really soon. Okay? Paul thought he was coming back soon. I'm 2,000 years closer. Uh, so at the very least, my odds are better. I think he's coming back very, very soon. I'm still working because I've been wrong on one or two things before in my life. So it's possible that I'm wrong. I could be wrong. Jesus may not come back for quite some time. But either way, I want to work diligently. And he says, verse 13, As for you, brethren, don't grow weary of doing good. And then he says, you know, if anybody doesn't obey our instruction, basically, you know, don't, don't let them influence you. Um, and verse 16, Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. Isn't that a great book? He says, hey, Jesus is coming back really soon. And that's a comfort to you. But it's also a call to action. It's a call. What are you going to do about it? What are, you going to, are you going to live well? And so Jesus is coming back. Work hard, live well, and may the God of peace be with you. It's, the world is nuts. The world is absolutely nuts right now. And Paul said to them, he's saying to us, through the Holy Spirit, the peace of God be with you. Do you have the peace of God in your heart? And if you don't have the peace of God, go back and ask yourself, wait, do I have the grace of God? If you have the grace of God, then walk in the peace. If you do not have that peace and you haven't received the grace, you need to receive the grace. You need to accept the grace of God and then once that happens, once you've received that, you can have peace in everything else. Once you have settled that, nothing else can move you off of that. If you have not settled that, nothing else can hold you, right? So peace be with you. To each and every one of us, the peace of God be with you. Guard your hearts. Keep you ready and watching and waiting, right? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is so relevant to us right now. I pray that, that we would live ready, that we would live comforted, but watching for your return. We want to be excited about seeing you, excited about getting to, to see you face to face and lay aside our, our sinful body and, and take on the one you've got for us, God. Let that, let that drive us. We want to have fellowship with you in a way that we can't even imagine right now. So keep our eyes open. Keep our hearts focused. Help us to live looking to you, but also looking at the world and looking for those people who need to, to receive your truth. Give us a burden for the lost right around us. Help us to, to seize the moments, take the opportunities, and just have your way with us, God. Go before us, strengthen us, guide us, give us your peace. And it is in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.